Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 2? We're going to not go back over these passages, but rather just continue to meditate on how it is that we drift, what are causes of drifting that take place. I wanted to read from our own statement of faith, the Baptist faith and message. It's in our Constitution and bylaws, and it reads this. All true believers endure to the end. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by His Spirit will never fall away from the state of grace, but shall persevere to the end. Believers may fall into sin through neglect and temptation, whereby they grieve the Spirit, impair their graces and comforts, and bring reproach on the cause of Christ, and temporal judgments on themselves. Yet they shall be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. The very common way of articulating perseverance of the saints. And the warning here and the warning passages, I do believe, are speaking of a, a final apostasy, that those that initially confess faith and they drift away, they neglect it, uh, they don't lose a true salvation in the sense that they were regenerated, but in another sense that what they confessed, they did not actually possess. And there's a difference between confessing something and possessing something. And that's what these warning passages are dealing with. And, but what we can see is, what are the causes of drifting? And we, when we reflect on those things, we have to admit, even within our confession, where it speaks of this possibility of backsliding, what are some causes of those? And so I want to read the passage and then just continue where we left off on maybe meditating on some things from Scripture that we see that, that might be a cause and are, indeed are a cause for causing a backsliding and for, for those that actually did not possess the faith, a means of apostasy. So in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. The message here is to pay attention. That's the positive. And we are told then also not to drift. And drifting again is just to do nothing. And why, what is it that causes people to drift? Well, the first thing we looked at is peace and prosperity. In comfort, it's easy to not pay attention to the message that we've heard. When things are going our way, we don't see that we have a need for Christ and the salvation in Him. When we face persecution, oftentimes people will drift away because it's not advantageous to be a Christian if you're facing persecution. 
In fact, that's what these Christians were facing, as they were facing persecution. And for them, it was no longer beneficial. And these things can damage us and damage, cause us pause in our, in our walk with the Lord. And in some sense, they, they also can be a means of damnation. As Christ himself has said, that those that receive the word endure for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. That's a source of damnation. That's a means of damnation that happens. So we have peace and prosperity that can cause drift. We can have persecution that can cause drift. What are some other things that can, that can cause us to drift? One thing is, I think it should be patently obvious, is false doctrine can lead us astray. We see this everywhere in Scripture. You see this in the final sense, in an apostasy sense, in 1 John chapter 2, where we read this, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Later he defines anyone that denies Christ in the flesh as the Antichrist. He says in verse 19, They went out from us, they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might be claim, become plain, that they are not of us. And that is that they had imbibed this false doctrine of Christ. There's a lot of ways in which, though, false doctrine can impact the Christian and cause them harm. Whether it's a a denial of the law, an anti-law view, or if it's a denial of grace. These can be damaging. We can deny certain aspects of the word and certain doctrines that can put us in a harmful spot and have us as a, living a life with wrong thinking. You see, how we live is actually built upon a foundation of right doctrine. Jesus warns, he says, for false Christ, false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. What Christ saying is that there are going to come those that will give a false message that will lead people astray. You think about throughout church history how often this pops up. Some heresy pops up and a whole group latches onto it and before you know it, you have apostasy of a group. You read in the prophets, there's this constant warning about false prophets coming and speaking, and God did not give them any word. We also see that there are those that will have a great appeal. Such a familiar passage, we looked at it Wednesday night. But 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3 For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. They will drift away because of false teaching. 
And here's the reality about this is so often when we see this phrase, there's coming a time where the teaching, they will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate teachers for themselves to suit their own passions. We tend to think of that as being something that's really obvious, but here's the fact, it's not because we all want to have that scratch where we itch. And that's why it's so deceptive with false teachers. Because we all have itches that we want scratched. And so false teachers know this. Every light attracts its own bug, if you will. This is to suit their own passions. What it is that that draws these people is there's something... And these teachers will pick up on that. And then what happens? They turn away from listening to truth. That's the result. That which they had heard. That's what they, that which they had received. They turn away from it. It's to be dislocated out of joint. That turning away... Because there's something about these teachers and it has devastating impact upon their soul. Because it's no longer dealing with truth. Paul warns of this, his final words to the Ephesian elders where he says, I know that after my departure, fierce Wolves will come in among you and not sparing the flock and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul tells us reality. Hey, when I'm gone and I'm not here to guard you, there's going to be wolves that come in. And by the way, they're going to rise up from within you. It's going to, look what he says, it's going to draw people away. It's going to pull them out. Why? Because they they have an itch and this wolf scratches that itch. That's the warning here. They speak twisted things and to twist something is to have like this idea of here is something of truth but now I'm going to distort it and I'm going to twist it. Something that's twisted still has a resemblance or semblance of that which it was in its original form. That's the danger of it. So he gives gives them this admonition. He says, therefore, because of these things, he tells these elders, therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with Tears. He's saying, look at how I handled this to protect the flock. We have to be aware of that. And you, you think of it during this time, it was oftentimes traveling preachers. Where they would come into town, they would find a church. It was these Judaizers oftentimes, Judaizers would try to put a works-based system upon the church. Okay, you believe in Christ, but you also need to be circumcised. You believe in Christ, but you got to keep parts of the law. And they would twist the gospel of grace. But they would go from 
church to church, and you think what happens is they pop into a church, they're welcomed by the brethren, they're, they're given their, an, an opportunity within that fold, and then they spew their nonsense, and it causes disruption and actually destruction in the church. That's the warning. It would be these traveling preachers. And today, you, know, you can turn on the TV. I think if you turn on the TV and see a TV preacher, it's fairly obvious. But boy, do I long for the days when we're battling the Joel Osteens of the world. We've moved on from that. That was easy to pick apart. We have now it everywhere. That infests... This is why when Paul sends Titus to the island of Crete and he says that you need to install elders on that island, he gives him this instruction. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Now, if you just connect that back to Hebrews for a second... Pay attention to what you have heard, that word of Christ. The mandatory uh, qualification here is he must hold firm to the trustworthy word. That is that word that was established and accepted among those that were get, receiving this letter. We have, to, we have to recognize that. This is something that has been established. This has been accepted. He must hold firm to that trustworthy word is taught that was given, that everyone said yes, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. That way, he not only is accountable to that, but everyone would recognize it, but also to rebuke those who contradict it, because there would be those that would come in and do that, as we have seen warned by Jesus. We have seen it warned by John. We have seen it in multiple places warned by Paul, that it pulls the disciples. It pulls those that confess Christ. And it pulls them from the safety and puts them into destruction. Again, we could look at this two ways. It can be damaging doctrine, or it damages you. It's not good for your soul. Or it could be damning, as Jesus has made already clear. So not only does peace, prosperity, persecution, but false doctrine are means of our drifting, but so is love of the world. Well, Jesus says this, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word. A love of the world, not separating from it, can cause one to drift. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, we see for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Look what he says to Timothy. Do your best to come to me. Paul's in prison. He's going to be executed. And he's asking Timothy, come to me. Demas was with him as a support. 
But it was that draw of the world. He says that he's in love with this present world. There's something about it that, that pulled him away. He never, he never separated. He never cut the ties. And now these things are pulling him away. He's deserted me as I'm facing death. What is it that we read in 1 John, that familiar passage that in so many ways outlines what takes place in the garden with Eve? 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, the desires of this world, the love for this present world, which John tells us is passing away. Paul says it's passing away. This love for that chokes out the word. It's not saying that we shouldn't enjoy the good things that God has given us. God in His mercy and grace is has given us so many wonderful things, so many blessings, food and food, so many things that God has given us. Those are not things that we shouldn't be thankful for. We should be thankful for those things. This is something different. This is a love for the world that the world is what now draws us. That is our, that is our end is the world. And it chokes out the word. We have to recognize that in our lives. We have to recognize that and always be gauging that, always be measuring that with the desires that we have. Are these desires that I have, are they healthy? Or are these things that are actually drawing me away from the Word and ultimately are they choking the Word out in my life? And if they're choking the Word out in my life, then we have identified something that needs to be killed. We've identified something that needs to be killed. If it begins to take that precedence over the Word of God, if it begins to take that precedence over what Christ has called us to, as, as a church, as a people of God, then we recognize that those things now are actually choking the Word out in us. And what a visualization that Word picture is that it chokes the Word out in us. And you think of weeds, and how they choke out the health of a plant that, you, you know, I look at my garden. You're battling weeds constantly. And if you ignore the weeds for long enough, what does it do? It chokes out your tomatoes. It chokes out your peppers. And they're no longer healthy. They're taking the nourishment. That's what the world does. That's what the world can do to us is it chokes us out so we're no longer fruit-bearing Christians. So love for the world can cause us to drift. But there's something else, and that is a false identity. An identity crisis, really. One of the wonderful truths of the gospel is this, is these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, and such were, past tense, some of you. That's the transforming reality of the gospel. You once were this, but you're no longer 
these things because God has washed you, he has cleansed you. That's no longer your identity. Such were some of you. That's the reality of the gospel. The gospel takes a person that is a vile sinner and turns them into a sanctified saint. If you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, you have been turned from a vile sinner to a sanctified saint. You're a sanctified saint. We might get have a false humility and say, oh, I'm, I'm no saint. Well, that's what God's Word actually calls you because of Christ's righteousness, not because of you. It's not a, oh, a saint, I'm going to pat myself on the back thing. No, Christ's righteousness has been imputed to you. He has changed you. You're no longer the same. You are different. Such were some of you. That's the reality of the gospel. What, what, what happens so often is that it was fun being an idolater. It was fun being a drunkard. Okay, I've come to Christ. I have to really let go of that? Well, you've been made new. It's no longer what identifies you. You're now identified in Christ. Notice what the New Testament tells us over and over again about who we are in Christ. We're told, put off, this is Ephesians 4.22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner. This is no longer you. It's a former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. In other words, there's a, there's a change in our identity there's the new self, there's the old self, and we're no longer identified with the old self. We are ashamed of the old self. We're thankful to God's grace that we're no longer the old self because now we have been made new. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified. What does it mean to be crucified? It means dead. It's dead. Look what he says. We know that our old self, that old nature, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You're set free in Christ. You're no longer identified by the things that you once were. It's not that we don't struggle with sin. It's just that the chains of sin have been broken upon us. Christ has broken them. It's not us. It's not picking ourselves up and trying more. It's no. Christ has done that. He has done it. We didn't do it. We didn't contribute to it. We didn't bring anything to the table in our salvation, and we don't bring anything to it in our sanctification. It is Christ working in us and for us. Paul writes this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? He's a new creation. This is why he says, such were some of you. You're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's what we're told salvation does. That's the goal. That's the end, is that you're transformed. 
You're made anew into the likeness of Christ. But what happens? What happens is oftentimes is that we look back to some of those former things, even for Christians, and we say, you know, I guess I'm just that person. And before you know it, we find ourselves caught in a web of lies, seeking happiness, seeking fulfillment, seeking contentment, but all we're receiving is death. We're receiving a lie. We have to recognize our new identity in Christ. And when we fail to cut the ties, what we do find ourselves doing is drifting. Now, again, just to be clear, this can be something that's damaging to you. As we read in our confession of faith, these things damage us. And for some that did not truly know Christ, it's the means of damnation for them. So why do we drift? Well, we drift in peace and prosperity. We drift in persecution. We drift in false doctrine. We drift with the love of the world. We drift with our identity crisis. But we ultimately, people will ultimately drift because the word heard was not accomplished in their hearts. Those in whom the word was accomplished in their hearts will make it to the end. So we see the causes of drifting. So here's the next question. How do we keep from drifting? To drift is easy again. We said this this morning. All you have to do is nothing and you drift. Just do nothing and you'll drift. So what do we, what do, we do to not drift? We've been given the imperative, pay attention, you must do this. That's in contrast of doing nothing, which we recognize is actually doing something. So we are always in a state of either drifting or doing. So how do we not drift? Well, he has told us to remember the message that we have heard. And what is it that they heard I think of what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, that would be applicable to those that were thinking about going back to the works of the law. Where he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith In Jesus Christ, for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over for sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's the good news. 
that by God's grace through faith, you can be declared righteous. It's by God's grace. You think about that. You do just the quick run-through of your life, and I'll go through the quick run-through of my life. It has to be by grace. But in that, we're called righteous. Because Christ gives us himself. He gives his own righteousness and imputes that to us. This is the, the, the beauty of the gospel, and this is where the Protestant Reformation divided the Protestant churches from the Roman Catholic Church. Roman Catholics held to infusion, that Christ's righteousness was infused with the believer's righteousness. And the Reformers came along and said, wait, we don't have any righteousness it's not infused a little bit of Christ's righteousness, a little bit of my righteousness. It's all of Christ's righteousness. As Luther said, an alien righteousness. It's not my righteousness. It's his righteousness that is given and is covering me. So how do we drift? We remind ourselves of that wonderful truth that we have all sinned, that we have all fallen short of the glory of God, but God in His grace, God in His mercy to us, has imputed the righteousness of Christ. There's another thing that I think would be a means of helping. It's entirely related to this, and that is understanding grace. And how it works in salvation. I think all of us here would readily admit that we would affirm that we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I, I think we would all say amen to that. So we understand here that our salvation is by God's grace. We, we have such clear passages of that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. We, under, we understand that. But here's sometimes where Christians, I think, get off, and that is that our sanctification is by His grace too. We see in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Look at Titus. It says it so clearly. Titus, in chapter 2, makes this whole point about sanctification. In verse 11, It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So, we're just repeating here what we've already said is salvation's by grace. But look what it does. Look what grace does in the next verse. Training us. Grace trains us. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. 
your sanctification is by God's grace. Which means this, you're not relying in your sanctification process on yourself or your marriage. You're reliant upon Christ, just as you're reliant upon Christ for your salvation. It is by grace that this takes place. When we say our salvation is entirely a work of God, but our sanctification is a work of God and myself... Our perseverance then becomes, I get to contribute to my perseverance. I get to contribute to that. Yes, we have commands. You are to do these things. Paul instructs the churches, you are to do these things. The new covenant, we are told we have the word of God, the law of God written upon our hearts. But here's the point. It happens by grace. What's the engine that drives your sanctification? It's not you. It is Christ. It is His grace that drives those things. So what do we do to keep from drifting? Well, a reminder of the message that we heard, that you are saved by grace through faith. I think that we have to understand grace properly in how it works in our sanctification. But here's the obvious one. If we gathered our children right now and asked this question, how do we keep drifting? How do we keep from drifting? Excuse me. We don't want to drift. We're trying to figure out how not to drift. If we were to ask our children, we would probably get answers something like this. Well, we need to pray. We would say, yeah, we do need to be, we need to be in prayer. Prayer needs to be part of our lives. The Lord has given us this wonderful means of communion with Him, personally, corporately, as a church. We're commanded to pray. We're told to pray. We're told how to pray. The Lord Jesus models how we're to pray. We'd say yes. If we asked a child, how should we, how should we keep from drifting? A child would tell us, well, read your Bible. These are all the Sunday school answers we always get, right? And we would say, yes, amen, that is true. If you are in the Word, the Word of God is the the wisdom of God, and He has given it to us. He has written it down for us. And so, yes, we need to read the Word of God. I I think if we asked our children this, they would say this, because I hear this in our children often is, well, how do we keep from drifting? They might not say it like this, but this is what they would say. Not neglecting. Not neglecting to meet together. As the habit of some. But encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. I think that that's one of the greatest means God uses. Is the means of grace which are realized in the church. How do we keep from drifting? The church. All of those other things are absolutely true and necessary and vital, and I'm in no way diminishing them or elevating one point over the other. But this is something that God has put in place 
for the growth of his people is not neglecting to meet together. It's something that could be neglected. It's something that we could just dismiss, not prioritize, and say, I got other things, I've got these things. And then before you know it, what are we doing? Because we're doing nothing, what are we doing? We're drifting. And when we're drifting, we're actually doing something. The safe haven of Christ, and we float by it. He gives us the means. God gives us the means of how we do not drift. He gives us his word. He tells us what grace is and how we are dependent upon that grace. He reminds us of the gospel, which we need to daily remind ourselves of this. But then he tells us, here is this thing I have put in place for the mutual edification of people that I have called out of darkness to walk in light. even tells us that when we're together, we're to encourage one another, which tells me this, and I don't know if this is true for you or if it's just me, sometimes you need encouragement because a lot of the world will discourage you. And sometimes we, we need that encouragement, and when we gather together, it should be something for encouragement. This is not just to build a church. This is for our benefit. And there's something vital missing in our lives when we take this out. It's God's appointed means for your growth, for your encouragement, and for your growing in Christ's likeness, and for your means of not slipping away. You know, so oftentimes people will say, well, where's a verse that says I have to go to church? Well, this is it. It's funny to me. And if you think about Paul's letters, he doesn't really say that all that often. I think it's implied everywhere. We can deduce it from all of his letters that we are to meet together, and that was the normal Uh, normality of the church was to meet. They just did it. But I find it so interesting in the one book where you have five warning passages that shake us to our core and make us wonder, wait, can I lose my salvation? We have such clear instruction about how we don't drift. And it's here in this letter where we're instructed you, you need to be in church. It's for your good. It's for a means of protecting you and for the mutual edification of the church. So let us remember, these are the things that cause us to drift. Peace, prosperity, persecution, false doctrine, love of the world, an identity crisis. We, we, we can drift and there's many more. How do we not drift? We, we understand grace. We, we pay attention to the message that we hear, and we fellowship with the saints. These are God's appointed means for keeping us from drifting. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is so perfect in always. It is so encouraging in its guidance for us how to live. 
But most important, it's so comforting in knowing that in Christ we receive forgiveness, we receive His actual righteousness, and we are delivered from this present passing world. And so we thank you for your great mercy and your grace. I pray that by your grace our desires would increase to be obedient to your word and to follow after Christ. By your grace, may we not drift and may we not neglect this wonderful, glorious message of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.